Hello, I'm Terry Schultz and I am channeling Brussels, getting newsmakers, movers and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble and have real conversations about the foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the headlines. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And joining me is Sandy Birschbau, the renowned U.S. diplomat who's just left Brussels after four and a half years as the Deputy Secretary General of NATO. He retired from the U.S. State Department as well. And what I did not know at the time of this interview is that he would become a fellow at the Atlantic Council, which in full disclosure, as I just said, is a sponsor of this program. Anyway, this was not Virchbau's first stint at NATO, but it was a particularly interesting one because there was near constant reference to a document Virchbau himself had helped write, the 1997 NATO-Russia Founding Act, which formalized relations between the alliance and the Kremlin. I met Ambassador Virchbau in the waning hours of his tenure at NATO headquarters, where he'd been giving lots of farewell speeches. And I'm told he even got choked up a time or two. But he doesn't admit that. So are you going to miss it? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, some of the tedious meetings, uh, I can do without. <laughs> you know Russia inside and out. You were there during Soviet days. You were there in the heady days of Yeltsin, Baltic freedom, all kinds of potential. Could you ever have imagined that these decades later we would be where we are now? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. I mean, it's, it is really the worst relationship, and that's both the NATO-Russia relationship and the U.S.-Russia relationship uh, since any time I can remember, and I started my career in the late 70s. I think as a, as a student of history, I'd have to go back to the Berlin crises of the early 60s to think about as a volatile and unpredictable and dangerous a situation as we have now. What is dangerous mm-hmm. about this? Well, thinking back over my career, even in, in, the, in the Brezhnev days, which was a not not a particularly pleasant time in terms of uh, life inside the Soviet Union or the relationship with the Soviet Union, but there was a certain uh, acceptance of some basic rules of the game, and that applied most of all to Europe, where uh, when I started my career, we'd just signed the Helsinki Final Act, which uh, accepted the borders, made clear that borders should not be changed by force, that we should respect the sovereignty of independent states, also has some very important commitments on human rights, which the Russians may not have taken seriously at the time, but which became very important uh, as the Cold War began to uh, began to unravel. But today we don't have uh, those those rules being observed by Russia anymore. Uh, unlike Brezhnev, President Putin is not a status quo power. He wants to, to revise the whole post-Cold War settlement. Uh, he's tearing up uh, a lot of the basic principles even of the UN Charter, of the Helsinki Final Act, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, you name it. Uh, so that's why you know, the relationship itself is so unpredictable. And of course, he's, he's acting upon this revisionist agenda, using force to change borders, to occupy illegally parts of Ukraine uh, to this day, supporting this separatist movement while denying that they're there. Uh, but there's thousands of Russians actually running the show. Uh, and now with the intervention... Not just running the show, but on the ground. Feet on oh, the ground. There, oh, there's, there's, we don't know the exact number, but there's thousands of regular Russian military uh, commanding and controlling these so-called separatists. Nothing happens there without Moscow's direction. And in Donbass as well, right? That's what I'm talking about, the Donbass. Yes, right. But, you know, but Crimea, the Crimea is, there's, they, don't, they don't deny it. It's, uh, it's fully occupied. They say it's been reunited. We say it's been illegally annexed. But even, <laughs> even Europeans and Americans were not, did not immediately say that the Russians were on the ground there. And um, now we say it, right? 
Yeah, well, in the case of Crimea, Putin himself uh, you know, confessed soon after the annexation. In the case of the Donbass, recently he kind of implied that Russia was forced to intervene to protect the Russians inside the Donbass. So he kind of implicitly admitted that there's been Russian military intervention. But they still try to maintain this uh, increasingly implausible deniability about the presence of the, uh, of the Russian regulars there. So when, when, you talk, when you talk about Putin um, in particular, um, having seen his, his progression, is there any one move that he's taken that made even you go, <laughs> he did that? Well, there's very few things that completely uh, surprised me. But I think the actual annexation of Crimea, at the, at the time, we assumed that it was in Russia's interest to preserve this rules-based system. Uh, you know, sovereignty of borders is something they emphasize very much. They even call their political model sovereign democracy, as if sovereignty is the ultimate uh, principle. But I guess it's only sovereignty for Russia, not for the neighbors. Uh, so instead of turning Crimea into another one of these frozen conflicts, like uh, occupied parts of Georgia or uh, of Moldova, uh, he's, to our surprise, yielded to the temptation to you know to go all the way to illegally annex it and to create this falsified historical narrative about how uh, you know, Russians were being persecuted, of which there's no evidence, uh, that it was illegally given to Ukraine by Stalin, uh, ignoring the fact that when the Soviet Union broke up, there was a treaty involving Ukraine and Russia in which they accepted the sovereignty of their borders as of 1991. So uh, that, that, I think, exceeded our imagination, but it all happened so quickly that uh, I, I look back at 2014 as uh, really the biggest watershed year in my entire career. Should you have known? Well, yeah, I, I perhaps I should have because uh, uh, I was reminded, thanks to WikiLeaks, back in the day uh, when I was the Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, I went to Georgia and had a meeting with former President Saakashvili, which... Uh, I can read the record of uh, uh, on the internet now, uh, in which Saakashvili warned, and this was, I think, a year or two after the war in Georgia, he said, mark my words, Crimea is next. And uh, I obviously wasn't listening carefully enough at the time. And I think one looks back at, Munich, at the Munich Security Con Conference speech by Putin in 2007, and uh, some of his statements at the NATO summit in uh, Bucharest in 2008, where he questioned Ukraine's statehood, uh, that, the, that he has had ideas about uh, Ukraine and Crimea going back many years. What could you have done? Well, that's a, that's a tougher question. Uh, we, we perhaps could have done more to support Ukraine uh, early on, uh, right after the Orange Revolution, when they had a great opportunity to clean up their act, to uh, control corruption, to introduce reforms. And, uh, and they, they, they blew it, to put it uh, undiplomatically. They uh, blew it, but the West didn't push but them. But the West maybe should have been more proactive in, uh, in trying to push them to, uh, to do the, the hard work of uh, you know, fixing their economy, reining in the oligarchs, so that they wouldn't have had this uh, backlash uh, when Yanukovych you know, disappointed them again in 2013 by succumbing to the pressure from uh, Russia to abandon the EU Association Agreement. Well, has that lesson been learned? Are you doing enough now? 
Uh, well, I think we're doing a lot more. I mean, NATO is only one piece of this. We've been uh, ramping up more our support. More and enough are not the same thing? Well, uh, there's certainly scope for more, and I hope to, when I move on to whatever my next, the next stage of my career is that I can be an advocate for uh, standing up for the neighbors of Russia because I think if if we can succeed in making Ukraine, Georgia, these other countries success stories in terms of uh, market economies, uh, rule of law, uh, robust democratic institutions, accountable leaders, uh, that's the best response to Putin's effort to reestablish uh, dominion over the former Soviet Union. And this sort of transitions from Russia because of r recent events, but um, when it comes to cyber, this is another case where perhaps nobody expected how high the levels of, in this case, Russian, but also Chinese, also other countries, mm -hmm. meddling interference penetration would go. And we're seeing just every day, for me, breathtaking <laughs> levels of Russian interference. Has that been another place where you, perhaps the U.S. and, and European countries should have been ready to do hand-to-hand -hand cyber combat and weren't. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not entirely surprising. Uh, you know, maybe the the nature of the attacks and the efforts to uh, interfere in the internal political processes uh, of the United States and uh, and other countries has gone farther than people imagine. But the basic threat from cyber warfare has been known for some time, and of course Estonia knows from direct experience. Uh, what it's like to come under very massive cyber attack. With and efforts. warned NATO and they did, constantly and we, raised the alarm and were yeah, called paranoid. Yeah, and I think NATO <laughs> has uh, been improving substantially in how it deals with the cyber challenge uh, over the time I've been here. I think it was a very uh, delicate issue. You know, what's national responsibility and where does NATO have have a role? It was, a, was you know, This is where sovereignty becomes a big issue for allies. Uh, I think we've learned that we have to pool our efforts we have to uh, work with the European Union, which has more authority when it comes to domestic uh, economic systems and banking systems and other targets of, of, of cyber attacks. Uh, so we need a, a kind of holistic approach. And we also have to think about cyber um, warfare on our own side when it comes to you know, future, uh, future warfare. Uh, we may face... Uh, offensive cyber attacks uh, in military theaters of operation. And even that very, very delicate subject is now a uh, fair game for discussion within the alliance. And that's true. Warfare, the, the entire definition of warfare, the way you look at what it, what is a war is changing. And mm -hmm. I mean, bring in the disinformation aspect of that as well. Um, and also, I, I'm sure you're aware of numerous studies pointing out that, again, not just in the cyber realm, but in economic and blatant political meddling in Eastern and, and Central Europe, the Russian influence has been so strong that some countries are literally economically um, vulnerable to mm -hmm. Russia basically pushing a button and falling apart. I mean, uh, does that worry you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, any kind of vulnerability of that kind uh, is a weak link in, the, in our uh, overall defenses. And that's, of course, both for NATO and the European Union. Uh, you know, there's the technical dimension of this, the, 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 the risks that our economic institutions, uh, critical infrastructure could be uh, damaged even uh, to the point of destabilizing our societies. But there also is the, the power of, uh, of uh, influence operations, disinformation to de destabilize us uh, from within. Where the, and 
in those kinds of attacks, the fingerprints are even less easy to detect than with the uh, you know direct assault on uh, you know the cyber networks themselves. So you think they're they're doing well, the Russians? Uh, I mean, by yeah, their but we're not. Uh, you know, we we NATO, we the Allies are, are not uh, by any means you know, passive or complacent about this. Um, but I think these recent uh, attacks on political processes have been a good wake-up call for the general public in realizing that this is an area we're going to have to invest more. I think uh, you know, if uh, everybody's email accounts can be hacked just with reckless abandon, uh, we may need to think about uh, some kind of, uh, sort of Manhattan Project approach to, uh, to, to cybersecurity uh, for our own defenses. I noticed the Russians just announced a... Uh, sort of an intranet, that they're going to take a lot of their military systems off the intranet. Uh, that may be something that uh, we'll have to think about uh, in NATO as well. When the SACOR's personal email account got hacked, were you worried that they'd be after yours? <laughs> I thought about it. Uh, they may have been. I just don't... Uh, they just haven't uh, found anything worthy of uh, leaking. Uh, but <laughs> it's I not don't out know. yet. But, uh, but I don't know yet, but... Uh, I do, I do change my password more more regularly than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, could you ever imagine a day when, when here at NATO we go back to the way it was when, when I first moved here 10 years ago or the way it was in, in previous uh, postings of yours where the Russians can just walk over and have lunch in the cafeteria? When I came, people said, you know, people are talking about everything, all NATO secrets. If you mm -hmm. just go buy a sandwich, you, you know, the Russians, they can just sit there and hear anything they would want to know. They don't even need to pay spies. Could you ever imagine a day again when the Russian delegation to NATO is going to have free access to walk around and how serious was that was that really um, was that was that really a vulnerability of the building it, it was a vulnerability and we you see the signs in our coffee only bar uh, only unclassified conversations um, and I think you know there will be uh, similar challenges in the new headquarters where there'll be even more user-friendly uh, coffee bars and uh, places for uh, people to uh, uh, you know talk offline uh, of course, we haven't uh, completely banned the Russians from the headquarters. The ambassador and uh, I think three other diplomats still have their badges and can, can come in without uh, a prior appointment and an escort. Uh, but the feeling but it's, but it's much the much same. different than it was before when uh, there were even a couple of cases of Russians trying to kind of sneak into NATO meetings even though they had the wrong color badge. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, it, it is hard to see the days of a, of a, of a more trusting and partnerly relationship with the Russians uh, being restored, uh, certainly without uh, fundamental changes in, in the attitudes of the leadership in Moscow. Uh, and I find that very disappointing. You know, I spent a lot of my career over different stages working on bringing Russia into the European security architecture, as we say, in the trade. Uh, and it was for, for us something we really believed in. And we really, you know, took to heart when Gorbachev came on the scene and talked about a common European house. And Yeltsin, even, you know, in 1991, said he might want to join NATO. Uh, you know, we, 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 I think, did a lot uh, from our side, and we achieved a lot. When we, you know, don't forget, you had Russian peacekeepers shoulder to shoulder with Americans in, uh, in parts of Bosnia and, and again in, in Kosovo, even after the disagreement over Kosovo. So... Uh, it wasn't foreordained that we would be at loggerheads the way we are now. But uh, I think, and I've said this before, that a lot of the, the reason to be pessimistic, or at least be realistic, 
about the prospects for better relations with Russia is because Russia needs NATO as an enemy uh, for, you know, for, for, for maintaining political control at home and you know, fighting the contagion of Western ideas and uh, Western values. It's uh, essential for the leadership in Moscow to portray NATO as, as, as the adversary that's bent on regime change in Russia, that's bent on depriving Russia of its, of its position in the world, uh, all of which is, which is poppycock. Uh, but uh, that's the way they see it. But and is it hopeless then because they wouldn't want anything, anything different? Well, that's why I say we have to be very realistic in the short term. We, try, we have to manage the relationship. Uh, we have to be the mature adults in this relationship and try to persuade the Russians that this unpredictable behavior, these, you know, these frequent snap exercises and other saber-rattling that they engage in on a regular basis is, uh, is, is, is potentially dangerous. It could lead to an incident that could get out of control. But you guys have been saying that for years. I mean, let's look at the missile defense. It's not aimed at you argument. It's yeah. done nothing. Well, <laughs> I think you know, I, I, the Russian rocket scientists know that the, the missile defense is going into Romania now and going into Poland in two years cannot at all degrade Russia's strategic deterrent. But it's that's a, it's my a, point. They do know it. It yeah, doesn't they do. change their, their may, but, posture. But, uh, you know, the, the Russians may fear that there's some secret program to have a, a super missile defense that will be ten times more capable, which there isn't. Uh, but uh, but I think it's also part of the their tactics of keeping NATO on the defensive, keeping NATO as the enemy in the eyes of the Russian public, uh, sowing divisions within our own societies, you know, and you hear many people saying, you know, maybe, maybe it is our fault. Maybe we, we, we provoke the Russians into annexing Crimea. And, you know, that, that is outrageous. Uh, even if you disagree with uh, what NATO has done in the, in the Western Balkans, you know, we didn't annex. We didn't intervene to annex Kosovo. We intervened to end human suffering, to end genocide. And uh, we've now helped bring about a normalization of relations between Belgrade and Pristina. So... I get quite irritated by the revisionist history that we hear from the Russians and some of the falsification of, of the facts about missile defense and, uh, and about NATO enlargement. Is it disappointing to leave on that note when you have seen such highs and such yeah. different tones? No, it is. And I've said this. I've been giving lots of little farewell addresses. And I, I have talked about being disappointed, even frustrated, by uh, the state of the relationship with Russia and all the missed opportunities that we had. I, mean, I consider joint missile defense the, the biggest missed opportunity of the last decade. Uh, it could have really transformed the relationship by having NATO and Russia working together to counter common threats. But at least for today's leadership in Moscow, I think you know, the idea of a NATO and Russia collaborating to meet a common threat, uh, which we think would be a real game changer and transform the relationship, for them that's anathema because it would go against the idea that NATO is the adversary. I wanted to ask you, aside from from policy questions, you were the first American DSG, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and now we have another one and a lady. Um, Which is great because NATO has been a little bit uh, tardy in uh, improving the gender balance, particularly at the most senior levels. It has. Um, <laughs> do you think that this is something now that is necessary? How, what have been the advantages and disadvantages for NATO to have an American in the number two slot? Um, and how would you project that forward? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's good that these senior positions rotate, and I think uh, it's probably likely that the the one after Rose Goddard Miller will be from a from another member nation. 
But uh, unlike Sakura, who stays in the American <laughs> hands, right? Uh, yeah. Well, that's sort of a one of the basic design features of NATO is that the the military structure should be headed by an American, given the preponderance of military power. But I think it's been an an advantage both for Secretary General Rasmussen and for for Stoltenberg to have an American in the number two position. Uh, if I can be immodest, you know, somebody who has a lot of background in, in NATO over different periods and has uh, worked very hard on the relationship with Russia, but also has uh, a lot of credibility with the East Europeans. Uh, so You're I've allowed been... to be immodest. You've been <laughs> understated your whole career. Uh, and I also uh, tried to kind of broaden the, the, the span of the, uh, of, of, of the activities done by the Deputy Secretary General. I like to call myself a full-spectrum DSG uh, in the sense that I've, uh, I've had to chair a lot of, uh, of uh, committees within the alliance, some within the staff, some with the nations. Uh, I've run NATO intelligence. I've been heavily involved in capability development. I do a lot of management issues, personnel. Uh, but of course, I've been also the point person for dealing with Russia and Ukraine. I uh, spent a lot of time uh, doing outreach to uh, the the non-NATO partners, the Finns, the Swedes, but also the Middle Eastern partners. So I've been I've been pretty busy in this job, but I think beyond all the specific things I've been doing and uh, doing a bit of, sort of troubleshooting with recalcitrant ambassadors behind the scenes, uh, has been just bringing the strategic perspective that comes from being a veteran in the American uh, diplomatic service, which I think helps. Uh, the Secretary General and better appreciate uh, you know, how Washington views these issues, you know, how developments in Europe fit into uh, the global uh, trends. Uh, also with the uh, access to U.S. intelligence, you know, can give at least indirectly a bit of early warning to uh, emerging crises. Uh, so uh, I'm very glad to have Rose Gottemuller as my successor. I couldn't think of a a more capable person, to, to, so she'll have to uh, take over the burden of uh, these periodic slugfests with the, the Russian ambassador. You're going to miss it, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit, but I, the, there's many other Russians I can, uh, I can duke it out with. <laughs> and that was Ambassador Sandy Vershbow as he left four and a half years as NATO's Deputy Secretary General. Now, just one final anecdote about the ambassador. One thing many people may not know is that he is an avid drummer and can often be drawn into performing at embassy functions and such. And I heard that at one of his farewell parties, he both played and sang back in the USSR to none other than the Russian ambassador, who I'm told was quite impressed. And that's it for this show. Join me again in a fortnight for another Channeling Brussels. I'm Terry Schultz.